Hello everyone and welcome to another glorious summer of sport. What a summer of sport it is this year. In addition to our hardy annuals, Wimbledon, the Tour de France, etc. We have the Euros, we have the Olympics and we have a podcast to match. Um, I will be welcoming Raf Honigstein and Danny Kelly to talk about football. I will be welcoming Anders Ericsson to talk about the science of practice and whether 10,000 hours is a myth and how much it counts, what you do with those hours. We will have a wonderful piece of writing by the legendary George Plimpton uh, on Muhammad Ali and we will have Richard Asquith talking about extraordinary runner Emil Zatopek. On your marks, get set and go. Welcome everybody to the June Vintage Podcast. It is very sporty and uh, to get things kicked off we are joined by award-winning broadcaster Danny Kelly and author Raphael Honigstein who wrote the book Das Reboot, now available in paperback, which is all about the rebooting of German football. Um, and we're going to talk football, I think, aren't we first, Alex? Yeah, yeah. We, ha- I mean, we're just ahead of kickoff of the Euros. Exactly. Aren't we? I mean, how excited are we about Euro 2016? Should we be completely honest for the yeah. listeners? I think I'm more excited than you are. I, that's possible. Uh, to be honest with you, it, when it comes to sport, whenever it becomes a national team, I get a little bit excited. Whereas when with club stuff, I'm, I've sort of switched off. But with when when England do pretty much anything including, I don't know, bowls, darts. Can you do that nationally? Probably not. But anyway, I get I get my flag out and I get a bit excited. And of course, I've got two sons and they are excited. The wall chart is up on the wall. We're ready to watch obscure European teams play each other. As you know, I, I'm only ever allowed into this office uh, when I'm doing this. So yeah. I don't know whether you have an office sweepstake, but I imagine you do. It's starting today. Yeah, we are, we're sorting it out today. I, I'm actually probably more excited about that than I am about the actual championship. OK, chaps, who <laughs> should he hope to get in the sweepstake? I'll, I'll let Raphael say Germany. He has to say Germany, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah, I think Germany and France are the ones that uh, have been widely tipped to do well for obvious reasons. I think Spain also should not be underestimated. And funnily enough, England are edging towards being included in this conversation. But the really, main, you think? The main thing is, is I actually think it's going to be an amazing competition. And I, I don't always say that. One, France is a good country. It's the right size. It's a good country to have it in. Two, um, it's going to be amazingly competitive because the two traditional powers in the European Championship, Germany and Italy, are both in their different ways in transition. And the most recent superpower, Spain, are definitely in a big transition. Equally, the smaller countries, I'm thinking about Wales with Gareth Bale, uh, Slovakia with Marek Hamchik. They've England. all got pl- England with Harry Kane. If you like, they've all got one player who can hurt even the best teams in the world. And oddly, the way the tournament is set up, the way the, you get into the second round, there will be no dead rubbers whatsoever because one win can put you through. It's going to be a fantastic tournament. I know somebody who has already had their office sweepstake and got Albania and, ah. uh, and said to me, uh, what are my chances? And I said, you, you know, they're not good. And, uh, and he said... Well, I mean, am I going to get out of the group stage? Because that's the only that's the only time I get interested. And I said, well, no, that's just no. You have to be interested in the group stage. That's the best bit. When it gets to the knockout, I, funnily enough, get less interested. I love all those machinations. Well, if you're Albanian, I think you're not going to 
get um, excited about the uh, knockout stages, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but they do; they could do damage, couldn't they? Um, I mean, they, they beat Portugal, you, right? Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> Albania, Albania's big game is against Switzerland because half the Swiss team mm. is Albanian. There's yeah. a, 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 a well-travelled line um, between Albanians going to Switzerland to play, becoming nationalised. Indeed... Um, the Xhaka brothers will be playing on opposite sides. It'll be a fantastic game. Raph, we need to talk about Germany. Come on, tell us about Das Reboot and why this has an effect on what we're going to be seeing on our TV screen soon. Okay, well, first of all, Germany, um, along with England and, funnily enough, Switzerland, um, are the three youngest sides at this tournament. And I think it's a reflection of um, where they are, which is a situation where you almost expect young talents to come through every single year. Um, players who are 18, 19 are in the team, 20 years like Julian Weigel, probably unheard of outside Germany, but uh, really poised to have a big impact. And the genesis of this is really an overhaul of the youth development system around the turn of the century, where Germany really lost its way, had lost its way completely, had been overtaken by all sorts of countries, including the Czech Republic, the Dutch, etc., and uh, had really lost out on its own natural advantage which was size and numbers by um, getting behind the curve when it came to actually doing something with the size and the numbers I, why had that happened what, what were they not doing um, I think it was just a sense of complacency um, because a, a bad Germany team could still get to the World Cup final uh, a good one would win a competition um, and uh, the sort of the, the triumph of 96 papered over the cracks the fact that German teams were still competitive in, in uh, European football club teams, uh, be it with uh, with foreigners on the pitch, lots of them papered over the cracks. And it took really those two sort of disastrous tournaments of 2000, 2004 for people to, to wake up to the true scale of the problem. I think um, people like me who've grown up living in the dark shadow of the next German football team was coming along to crush all op- opposition. Because I have an absolute, and it's, I, it applies to this tournament coming up in the next few weeks, Germany may not be the best team in any given tournament, but you will have to beat them to win it. And if you don't, they will win it. So they all, they're always bobbing on the surface of every other team. Every other team is looking up to the glass ceiling of Germany, and you have to smash that to get through. But in 2000, I went to Charleroi. Um, I was working for the Times or someone. I went to Charleroi to see the game between England and Germany. It was the worst game of international football ever between two major nations. Described to me by Danny Baker, I was with as two bald men fighting over a comb. Um, it was and and it was extraordinary. It was the one of the moments where the German FA and the German people and the German fans said, "We can't go on like this." Look at that nonsense. We England won, incidentally, it was, but that was absolutely irrelevant because it was a terrible, terrible game of football. What's interesting is that Germany had. Has a very similar, in many ways, culture to England in in terms of football. We don't like to recognise, we like to pretend England is absolutely unique, but it's a big industrial country with massive stadia, huge clubs, very uh, intense support in the middle of cities, um, and they had their own problems, the same as us in the eighties and nineties. Football hooliganism, hooliganism, financing going a bit awry. It's it's fascinating, and, and Raphael's book is just brilliant on it about the two ways we chose to do it in England for reasons that are complicated and to do with the politics of the country and what happened at Hillsborough and all sorts of things. We chose to go a commercial route. We decided we would make the most money we possibly could out of the, the national obsession in Germany and in consultation with larger groups of stakeholders, and I include the fans in that. They decided they would reinforce the national game, have better clubs, have clubs that responded to the local community and to the public 
and to try and use the vast population to get them fit by playing football again, which had almost become a sideshow. Yeah, we also got. Did you grow up in Germany? Yes. And and you grew up supporting a club, and did you grow up playing football as well? Yes, I'll be not at a great level. Um, my, my sole claim to fame is, is representing Germany at the Jewish Olympics and scoring two goals against Paraguay. But Paraguay <laughs> they were, were powerhouse in those days. Were, were, were awful. Um, <laughs> I, I love that claim to fame, don't you? I've, known, you? I've known him 10 years. I didn't know that. That's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, to be me. able to put that on your CV, <laughs> I would. It would be right at the top of the CV. Um, I also think I got into the squad because my brother at the time was going out with a coach's girlfriend. But that's just a hunch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I think Germany did two things right. First day, after some toing and froing and getting sidetracked by some of the debates that we sometimes also see here where people say, too much money, um, no leadership on the pitch, lack of character, they don't like wearing the shirt, uh, they're all soft, uh, no one's playing in the streets anymore like it used to be in the 60s. After going through a whole cycle of all that nonsense, frankly, they realized that it is really to do with analyzing the problem and then very systematically, as you'd expect from it's, us, it's a, yeah. addressing it and saying, we need better coaching, we need better coaching for the coaches, and we need to make sure that these guys have more game time. But what did help Germany, and this is where England, by no fault of their own, missed out in 2000, what well, would have been 2018, is the win to stage the World Cup in 2006, which happened in 2000. Right at the time when the national team is at its lowest, here comes a chance to stage a World Cup six years later, and that concentrated people's minds and also made it easier to get some of the reforms through, to get people around the table, to all go in the same direction because everybody was really afraid of embarrassing themselves on home soil in 2006. And that's why I always say, uh, talking to some of my English colleagues, when England failed to win the right to stage the World Cup in 2010, I think I believe, I believe it was, that was a huge uh, tragedy in a way because I think that would have been a moment where things could have changed. Um, they already have changed in a way, maybe to the better, but Germany are slightly ahead um, of England because they addressed the problem a bit earlier. Can I ask you both how much the um, the increased mobilisation of, of footballers has affected this? Because obviously we're used in this country to going, it's been at the top of the highest level of football, to going and seeing players from all over Europe and all over the world. That doesn't happen to the same extent in other countries, does it? I mean, there is not really much of an export of English players. I mean, obviously, but that's you have... simply because of the money. English it, it, players, exactly, English players exactly. are not even if they were required to go abroad, if they were good enough to go abroad, they won't go because they don't. They're taking a fantastic living being a bang average footballer in this country. Whereas, if you're a footballer from almost any other country, um, you will, and you first you'll go to other leagues to earn a, a better living. And eventually, they end up gravitating towards England, and it's a process. And Raphael would no doubt comment on this. That's about to be accelerated by the massive deal that the Premier League is just coming down the pipeline. I said it in the build-up to the recent playoffs for who was going to get into the Premier League. Sheffield Wednesday, a club that's been away from the Premier League for the best part of a generation, if they had won that game and been promoted into the Premier League, would have been able to afford to buy and pay any footballer in the world who wasn't currently playing for Bayern Munich. Paris Saint-Germain, Barcelona or Real Madrid, that's the power of the Premier League ne mm. next year. Mm. How much does that affect what happens on the international stage, Raf? Well, the, the crisis of or the problem for big national teams starts with globalisation because they lose half of their footballers to foreigners. 
In the Premier League, it's about 60% now foreigners. In the Bundesliga, certainly in around 2000, it was 50%. Spain, less so, um, but similar problems in, it- in Italy. And when you take away the numbers that Germany relied on, you know, we say, why do we have to look at tactics? Why do we need coaching? We have 350, 400 professional German footballers, we're going to find 11 really decent ones. And that was the mindset and probably justified to a certain extent. But once half those places get lost to foreigners and some of the best teams don't even have any German players anymore, or if they are playing, they're playing in goal or they're playing centre-back, but no more strikers. All the strikers are foreign because they're the best ones you want to buy the best. Once that these things kick in in the 90s, that then has a very bad effect on the national teams and they need to work a lot harder to redress that balance and also to um, offset the sort of um, innovative uh, advantages that some of the smaller nations have created for themselves. Holland's a great example. They don't have the numbers, so they always had to rely on better coaching, better technical education of the players. Now they've lost that advantage, and it's no coincidence in many ways that they're not going to be at the Euros because what they used to do best, now almost everybody can do more or less. Some people do it better than others, but if your one USP was having better coaches, well, now these coaches are sometimes coaching in other countries. I just want to pick up on something you were kind of slightly alluding to earlier when you Rafa, we were talking about England not getting uh, the, the World Cup those few years ago. Um, there is this issue of, of world football and the governance of world football and how much this filters down and affects who gets tournaments, where the money goes, what happens. I mean... We've seen the most extraordinary things happening uh, at that level of um, of the administration of the sport worldwide. How do you think it's going to play out? Well, how it's going to play out, I'm not exactly sure. I think you'll see increased uh, governance. Um, I think if the Americans keep up their current interest in this, you see people ending in prison and hopefully the pressure from from sponsors and from broadcasters who really haven't done anything so far. They've been very happy to sell the scandal, but even happier to sell the games. Um, and uh, it's sort of sitting in with one foot in and one foot out of the boat. I hope that things will change, but they will change quite gradually. Now, with the German FA, and this goes back to your question in the World Cup, they've been very pragmatic to the point of being cynical in knowing how to play the game. Their stance was always FIFA would even be worse if we weren't there, um, sort of doing at least half good things half at a time. But everybody knew that they won the right to stage the World Cup by creative um, measures at the time. <laughs> Professional friendships. Yeah, I mean, at the time, friendships. But this is, not, this is not restricted to football. At the time, um, in the late 90s, uh, if you were Siemens, you could actually bribe people abroad and it was not a criminal offence. You could even, I think, for a time, uh, declare it as a genuine uh, business expense. Hey, so, you, you only have to look at the way the Olympics were awarded. They almost make the way the World Cup was awarded look normal. Correct. Um, and the, the thing with England was that they, unfortunately for them, or maybe fortunately, could not play that game at the last World Cup um, bidding because you had um, Prince William as the head of the bid and it was clear that there was just no way you could do anything that was even remotely problematic. Now, they, what they did do, because they're not they're not completely idiots, uh, with David Dean being pretty street smart and savvy guy, was come up with this concept of um, retrospective retribution. So the, the pitch was, 
is going to make so much money this World Cup that we'll be able to support um, all these football projects all over the world. And if a few million fall off the back of the lorry that are destined for a new pitch, we probably won't look too closely. Unfortunately, the people making, as you know, the people voting were all in the 70s and 80s and said, we can't wait till 2018-19. We need our dough now. And ultimately, they, that's why England had not uh, a leg to stand on. That's, that's one of the things. I think, uh, I think you need to take this in a historical context. I think it's very hard for England ever to win uh, a tournament as, as the world football governance is currently set up. And that, that is partly historic. England ran football um, in the period directly after the, the, the Second World War. And a man called Sir Stanley Rouse was as powerful, more powerful than Blatter was back then. They made no effort to move the game out to the developing world. They made no effort to award it to anything other than big European countries and South American countries because they're in the football family, to use a, a phrase that's more appropriate to the mafia. We are hated, loathed, despised and abominated by three quarters of the football world. And so that is why England, and nothing Raphael said there is wrong, but it's added to by a backdrop that nobody's going to give England. Nobody's going to vote for England to win tournaments. Now, as your other question about what's going to happen, I take a far more apocalyptic view than Raphael. um, uh, Because in the end, because football has been commoditized, and despite the fact that FIFA, despite me endlessly calling for them to be torn down brick by brick, they have sent some money and organized for parts of the world to become part of the football community. And, of course, the, the South African World Cup was a brilliant thing to do. But money will talk, and exactly the same way that all the power in cricket has gone to Asia, because that's where four-fifths of all the money is generated, the fact that will soon come home to people. The countries within UEFA have all the best players in the world, have all the big clubs in the world, one or two exceptions in Argentina, I'll happily bow to them. Um, and I believe that UEFA will take over the running of world football very soon. But first, they have to get rid of the current crooks who run UEFA. We're going, we're, oh, uh, that's not apocalyptic. That's almost utopian. Well, uh, well, I'm te- I believe I believe that you are, the, the, the television companies and the European football unions will say we are football, really. Um, you know, and nobody will bat an eyelid, and and it wouldn't be the worst thing. The problem is at the moment we still have we're still it's being the system is still being flushed through. Gianni Infantino becomes the new leader of FIFA, and people say, well, he's much better than the last lot, but he's still part of another last lot. It's going to take one more flush of the toilet, and I suspect, as uh, just as as Raphael says, that it will be the paper pulling the chain will be the FBI. Wow! Wow! Right. Back in the right here right now, Mm -hmm. we need to think of Will's children uh, and how they are going to uh, approach this tournament. I need some predictions now. How is it going to go? Who is going to do really brilliantly, do you think? Well, we mentioned some of the obvious uh, contenders. I think England, to the surprise maybe of a few people, will have a very good Euros. I expect them to have the best tournament in a long, long time. The draw is set up for them. The fact that the group stage allows you even to lose a game, maybe even two, and you still qualify gives you a huge cushion and also I think will deflect from some of the fairly um, overblown conversation people have of who should be starting or not. It's seen you know, it's seen some kind of a question of national importance, whether Rooney starts or not, or Harry Kane or etc. In the, the reality is that England can win their first game and then Hodgson can do more or less what he wants because the new 16-team 16 form, 16 format makes sure that almost everybody goes through, even England. Um, so, 
They he did lose every game and finished bottom of the group in the last World Cup. They uh, were the same no, manager. No, they drew against Costa Rica. They, 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 they were plucky I against was at Costa that game. Rica. It's something that I won't forget. <laughs> and I think they were slightly unlucky, actually, to lose against uh, both Italy Italy, and yeah, Uruguay. Yeah, they had moments when they were the better and team they, in Italy. They were a decent side. And the thing is, there's something strange and funny about the Euros and, and World Cups. Just like you, Will, would be watching this, but probably wouldn't have watched the Champions League final between two Spanish sides. A lot of people get really interested because it's countries. It's something that you immediately know what France is and who they are. They're definable, and, and yeah. What kind of colours they play in. And, and it becomes sort of, sort of important for people who are not really into football. But the quality, actually, is an inversely proportional to the attention it gets because the football you'll see for most parts was sort of below Europa League level and um, it's very exciting because a lot of people are emotionally involved and it's one of those last sort of collective experiences that that people in the western world have and that's why it's, it's such a huge money maker but the actual quality of the games Danny, will be... you're a person mm. who's familiar with Europa League football as a Spurs uh-huh. fan. Uh-huh. Um, Not next year, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> no. Much fun as we've had here. Is that fair? Are you anticipating something oh, higher look, quality? Look, Raphael's absolutely... Of course, he's telling the truth. The, the, the best footballers in the world are converged into about 12 football clubs who are at the top of the Champions League, that self-perpetuating uh, self, um, mafia that is the, the Champions League. And so, yeah, the, 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 you won't see a game of the intensity and the technical quality of the, the recent Champions League final or the quarterfinal between but, but Juventus and Bayern Munich, which was just one of the best games of football you could ever see. Um, I think it'll still, be, it'll still be pretty fantastic because the teams are all pretty evenly matched. Um, who's going to win? I, I take the point that England can win. They're going to have to do, as they often do in these tournaments, they're going to have to liberate themselves from their coach. Um, it's an unusual situation, but England do best when they, the players say, oh, to hell with this. Shut, let, let that old geezer be quiet. We'll, we'll go out and we win We can't these. really hear a word against Roy Hodgson in this podcast because he's, he's a very keen very literate reader. guy. He's, yeah. he's a reader, very yeah. keen And reader. I would give him more time to read while, while the players <laughs> run the team. Do you think there's going to be an outstanding player of the tournament? Who are you keenest to see? Ooh, that's a really good question. Loads of great players. I mean, Paul, Danny's going to say Harry Kane. I'm not. We know I'm not. So Paul, Paul Pogba could could do what he's been threatening to do for two years now and become the best player in the world, playing in, in France's the Fre- midfield. The French are stuffed with amazing players yeah. up front. You've uh-huh. got Martial. You've got uh, Coman. You've got um, well, that's it really. No, no, you've got more. Well, Martial you've got is more. a pretty Griezmann, good place to start. Griezmann, yeah. Yeah, uh, Payet. Yeah. I mean, it really it goes on and on and on. And our best hope of beating France is they self-destruct like they often do. If if everything goes according to plan, Germany would meet France in the semi-final. And that's certainly a game, I think, that would be very, very interesting. And uh, Germany have decent enough players. You know, they're World Cup winners, so they should know how to kick a ball. Um, <laughs> they, they're maybe not as glamorous because they... Germany have taken the the idea of football being a team game almost to an extreme because you can take out one or two players and it doesn't really actually make a big difference. Um, I I hear you and I totally understand that, but there is a very large Philip Lahm-shaped hole in that team now. He's not that large. No, but but the the hole is large. (laughs) Yeah, the hole is large because he used to cover both sides. Ah. Guys, Uh, guys, I'm going to suggest now you go down the pub and continue this player by player (laughs) and atomization of of the forthcoming Euros. I think we know what you want to hope for in the sweepstake. Will, we think you've got to hope for France and settle for Albania. Okay. Surely surely you people should choose the team you want by which countries produce the greatest literature. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Ah, Albania would be in with a shot there. 
Quite right. Yeah. Quite right. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for coming in and enjoy the football. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Right, well, after all of that footy chat, it is time for ourselves to leave the field and to get onto the track. Richard Asquith has been a journalist for more than 35 years, and he's also a very keen runner. His last book, Running Free, was shortlisted for the Thwaites Wainwright Prize, and his latest, Today We Die a Little, is a biography of the amazing Czechoslovakian runner Emil Zatopek. He came into the studio to tell us just what makes Zatopek so special. I can hardly remember when I wasn't aware of Zatopek, actually. I mean, yeah, when I was eight, nine, ten, you know, the time of the Mexico Olympics in 1968 and or, or Munich in 72, it was around that time when I was sort of eight to 12. Um, and, you know, Zatopek wasn't around then. It was long after he stopped running. Um, and, in fact, no one in the West knew where he was. That was the thing about him, this great runner, and it was a mystery. He was briefly seen as a spectator at, Mu- at Mexico and in Munich. Um, but apart from that, in between, no one knew what had happened to him. He'd sort of vanished under the communists and that's probably the first thing I remember about him this idea of this great sporting hero who'd stood up for his principles and had disappeared. In terms of sporting achievements the first thing is you know just what he achieved at the Olympics you know he he was the only person ever to win all three distance running gold medals at the same Olympics 5,000 meters 10,000 meters marathon all in the space of eight days at Helsinki in 1952 and you know the odd thing was that marathon it was the first time he'd ever even attempted the distance um you know he won a, a gold and a silver at London four years earlier um he set 18 world records I mean just in terms of achievements um he was pretty much unique as a distance runner um, but that wasn't the only thing about him. Um, the two other things, one was that he he simply revolutionised the sport in the t- his approach to training. I mean, no, no one had ever trained in the way he did before, either in terms of the methods he used or the sheer volume and intensity of the training he did. Um, and the second thing, which to me is the most important thing of all, was the sheer charm and charisma and kindness and humanity with which he did all this. I mean, you know, we live in an age of win at all costs and you know, systematic cheating. And um, he lived in a time when, when sport was all about friendship between nations. And he, you know, it sounds a cliche, but he really, really believed in that. And he was, you know, the most popular, best loved athlete um, right at the darkest days of the Cold War. And, you know, at the Olympics, he would go there and bring people together. I think, I think, yeah, the thing about him, he took this really romantic approach to sport. I mean, what one of the, th- the other thing, I, my early memory of of Zatopek is um, seeing him interviewed at some point. Um, he was talking about the London Olympics, and you have the London Olympics like the austerity Olympics, that London was just recovering from the war, the whole world was recovering from the war. Emil spoke wonderfully about, um, I mean, he gave a famous interview with, with Neil Allen of the Times, I think, when he talked about what a liberation of a spirit it was to be there in London, and after all the the killing and the starvation and the horror of the war, suddenly just people coming together for no other purpose than just to race against each other. Um, he had this real sense of how romantic it was. Um, and two things that I remember about him in London, one was that he was his management told him he couldn't go to the opening ceremony because um, it was a very hot day and he was meant to be racing the next day, and he said, "But I've got to go to the end." He basically he said, "I must go to the opening ceremony because people back home will ask me what the Olympics are like, and I'll have to say I don't know because I was keeping in the shade." And so eventually, he basically, sort of talked his way into the Danish team instead, sneaked along behind the Czechoslovakian team, and sort of shuffled forward at the last minute. And then the management spotted him and told him to go away. And he said, "I can't leave now. The king's watching me." And so you know, he he stayed at the opening ceremony. And then later on, he so he won a gold medal, and then he won a silver medal with this amazing dramatic race. Um, but the the men were in 
one quarters in one part of London and the women were in miles away in a different part of London. I think they were in Northwood or something like that. And his fiancée, Dana, Dana Ingravar, who became his wife, who was born on exactly the same day on, as him and who later would win a gold medal on exactly the same day as him, she was in the women's quarters in um, in Northwood. So again, he sort of sneaked away from the team management. He left at dawn and sort of talked his way across London so he'd go and visit her. And he goes to this sort of girls' school where she's we're staying and he whistles her favourite tune to her. So she comes downstairs and signal and they sit by the swimming pool so he can show her his medal. And then while he's handing it over, he she drops the medal so it falls in the swimming pool. So um, at which point he has to take off all his clothes and dives in and gets it back. And then at that precise moment, the headmistress of the school comes out and catches them at it. So this sort of naked Czechoslovakian is sitting there. <laughs> trying to get his clothes back on. So I, I would say there's a very sort of joyful and happy-go-lucky approach to everything which encapsulates a sort of whole joy of Zatopek's approach to sport. Um, and oddly enough, the, the other story which totally captures his character is, is the thing when um, Ron Clark, the Australian 10,000-metre runner who set loads of world records of his own, fantastic runner, slightly after that effect's time, you know, about a decade later, um, broke a lot of Emil's world records. The one thing he never won was a gold medal of his own. In 1966, he went to Prague to visit um, Emil. Um, he was, you know, Emil invited him to come and race in a meeting there, so he raced in a meeting there, and then they, Emil looked after him, and he went training together, and they went shopping together and all sorts of things, and it was a fantastic host, as he always was. And then as they were leaving, um, Emil sort of went, walked all the way through customs with him and all the way up to the aeroplane, up the steps of the aeroplane, and then just sort of shaking hands to say goodbye, he pressed this little package into Clark's hand, and Clark sort of assumed he was being asked to smuggle something out because, you know, it was his communist Czechoslovakia, so he just sort of put it in his pocket and said goodbye. And, and Emil said, this is this is for you because you deserve it. He just sort of whispered that. So the flat plane flies off and Clark didn't even dare open it. And then eventually, you know, I think they were landing, they'd landed in London to change planes and he was they were taxiing on the runway and he finally couldn't resist anymore. So he, he opened this little package all wrapped up, and there it was. It was one of the gold medals that Emil had won at Helsinki, a little thing saying just to, to Ron Clark from, from Emil Zatopek with the day's date on it. Um, and he was so moved. You know, he, he said he wept, I think. Um, and to, to many people, that was one of the great sporting gestures in the history of sport. And that just seemed so more important, much more important than the precise times people get or where people, where people come in the medals table and things like that. I mean, he, that, Emil Zatopek encapsulated an attitude to sport which I just think is worth too much to be allowed to forget. I, I think the most important thing about Zatopek isn't how much he won, how often he won, although that is absolutely stunning what, what he did win. It's the way he won. It's the fact that for him, he didn't see running as a, as a sort of route to glory for him it was about it was a a vehicle for friendship basically and he was he was always talking to people he was you know he came from this really poor background he just taught himself languages so that he could talk to his fellow competitors you know he used to get a dictionary and he'd just learn start at a and work his way through to z and he ended up you know he was fluent in eight languages and sort of spoke several other ones and he would talk to people before races after races during races you know some competitors some of his rivals used to find it quite annoying because he'd just sort of wander along and say how you doing 
um, in the middle of that, and they thought they was trying, he was trying to outsight them. But basically, he was he was terribly loved by his. I mean, this this is the thing that I kept finding in my research. He's talking to people who knew him, um, of whatever age and wherever they were from. People loved him. There was something about him that he was just he warmed to people, and he he brought out the best in people. Um, and you know, he had devoted friends who used to be his rivals in. You know, Australia, in France, in America, in England. I mean, you name it. They were all just, they worshipped Atapeg almost. Well, we've talked a lot about, about sport of various kinds so far. But what about the science of sport? What really makes an athlete an elite athlete? It's great to have Anders Ericsson here, who's the author of Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Welcome, Anders. You've had a, a an interesting trip through the English and Welsh countryside, I think. Yeah, I just visited the Hay Festival, and, and it was a, a really wonderful experience. Uh, and I, I can really see here why people would come all over the world to, to, to kind of be part of that. That's quite an event. It's certainly a gathering of people who really like books, and this we, we like and appreciate. Um, what you were talking about was something that actually a lot of people know. It trips off the tongue very readily in conversation these days. It's that 10,000 hours that is associated with a lot of your work, isn't it? The 10,000 hours of practice that will make you proficient and beyond proficient in something. And that was originally, that, that came from your work originally, didn't it? That, that, that's correct. And, and, and I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that actually uh, looked at our work and then came up with a rule uh, where he actually emphasized that it was something magical about the 10,000 hours that if you had been doing something for long enough, uh, you would basically then have a chance here of becoming exceptional and, and really making a major contribution. I believe that, uh, unfortunately, he kind of didn't see all the... Uh, because it was really more an average, and I think the point that we were making is not that... 10,000 hours is magical. Uh, in fact, uh, if you're looking at people who win piano competitions, they probably have spent more like 25,000 hours in the solitary practice. The other thing that I think is maybe even more important is this idea that just doing things is not going to make you any better. And I think we know that from driving, and, and it actually turns out when you look at people working in professions uh, that after for the first couple of years, you can actually show that they're becoming more accurate or better in their job. They're just more or less continuing doing the same thing. So what we were pointing to was that special practice where you're not just doing, you're actually setting aside uh, time to change the way you're doing things. And we pointed out that when you do that under the supervision of a teacher, uh, then you really get changes in your performance. And, and it was that type of training where you actually go away uh, working on things that your music teacher had assigned to you as goals, and then you actually try to achieve those goals by yourself. That is what we call deliberate practice, and that's what we emphasize as a primary motor for making people Excellent. Yes, that's what you're really exploring in this book, isn't it? This this concept of deliberate practice. And it is, as, as you say, it's the difference, I suppose, between practice and training. They are two quite different things in a way, aren't they? Uh, there, there are many big differences. And I think in sports, uh, uh, when you have a coach who is coaching maybe 30, 40 individuals at the same time, 
that's quite different from the one-on-one coaching that we see in music where the music teacher can really assess what it is that you can and can't do and then uh, identify here what is the next step for you given your current uh, sort of skill level and, and how can you actually then go off by yourself to attain that goal uh, to be on the sort of the staircase here towards uh, the really high levels of performance. Uh, you have worked with teams, haven't you, in this in this country? Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, I, I went to Manchester City, and, and I guess it was exciting here because they that was just before they they won the uh, the league, uh, and I think there was a lot of kind of excitement here about really trying to improve and and one expression then was to kind of contact me and and I was able to talk to especially their developmental program but also uh the 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 main coaches uh so it's kind of your fault that Manchester <laughs> City won says an Arsenal fan <laughs> <laughs> well i i really think you know that that my contribution is pretty minor but it's now been sort of a rule there's several the saracens i met with also before they actually had their you know incredible success and 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 i really think you know that when you have a team that's really committed to success they're looking around, and, and, and apparently they found that the work that I've been doing was in line with what they wanted to uh, emphasize. And, and I guess in return, I get a chance to talk to people and, and get some sort of feedback here about you know, whether this makes sense and, and talk to, especially talking to individual players is something that I find very interesting. And um, I'm really interested by this, and I think it's fantastic that we can kind of map it onto something that's happened so recently, really. Um, as you'll know, you know, Leicester City stormed to the top of the Premiership table pretty early on in the season and stayed there, and nobody could believe that they were going to do it, but they did it. They had among their ranks players who had not been playing top-level football until very recently. It seemed amazing. And, of course, to the outside eye, it seems that something really special is going on in that team. There seems to be a hunger, a will to win, a team spirit that somehow is above what they might have done technically, above what resources they have. They actually did have a lot of resources, but even so. How do you rationalise something like that? Is it possible to look at that and say how and why that happened? Well, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, that familiar with the Leicester case, so I can't take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I know from other teams, and, and I was talking to one uh, coach uh, who had won, I guess, like 10 national championships in his sport uh, with his team. And he said that he thought it was incredibly important, you know, before the season he would actually get all the players together and then kind of tell them what he thought would be required if they were going to be able to make it again here and become champions the following year. And he found that, that there was a bunch of players who basically felt, you know, this is more than they think that they are willing to invest in this effort. Uh, but then you basically had a team here that had made that commitment, uh, and then everyone was sort of working together towards the goal of winning the championship. And and I think that sometimes, you know, there are many agendas going on. Some players are maybe looking more uh, to the future and, and, and how they 
personally will be perceived as opposed to necessarily doing the things that would be the best for the team. And, and I think once you kind of make that commitment to the team, uh, you're going to be doing things that are actually ending up benefiting the team more than if people were just trying to sort of play the best and, and the most uh, sort of, you know, kind of visibly uh, exciting kind of efforts uh, and taking risks that may not you know, benefit the team. Mm. It's true, isn't it, that especially in high-level sports, team sport, well, actually team and individual sports, there are now just bevies of professionals behind each team. So nutrition is monitored, um, practice, physiotherapy, I mean, just everything is monitored. Um, but you're also talking about the psychology of sport, I think, aren't you? And, and that certainly has become a much more important component of, of elite sports, hasn't it? Uh, for sure. And, and I think what we find across all sorts of domains is that the very successful people, they're very self-aware about what they need to do with their daily schedules in order to maximize uh, basically the effectiveness of the practice that they do. And, and we find, you know, it's not the number of hours of practice every day that matters. It's the number of hours when you can be fully focused on making the adjustments and working on the things that you need to change. That's the critical part. And in fact, uh, if you try to push in more than four or five hours a day, uh, the evidence seems to suggest that you're actually working against yourself because part of that time is going to be spent doing things when you're really not focusing in on what you are trying to do. Uh, so you're actually you know, pushing yourself towards doing, you know, basically what you're doing during a match. Uh, because if you're training in a way that's very different from the concentration you have when you're actually playing matches, well, that that is not uh, the way in which you improve your ability to play during matches. And, and I think the very good athletes, they realize that if you're going to improve your performance when you're competing, you're going to have to have the same mental state when you're actually training. And, and, and that I guess to some, you know, seems like a lot of work, um, but that often means that they're not going to be as <laughs> successful as some of their teammates. Well, it's definitely true when you watch watch sports people across all sorts of different sports. Often you see in very, very successful people a kind of intelligence and awareness of what they're doing, a sort of focus, I suppose you could say. Um, one of the things that you also have to do is think about individuals, differences across individuals. And I mean, if just even if you think about writing, well, you know, some writers write for a very short period of time a day. They may write in the morning. They may, may write in the evening. Some people slog at it, write fast, write slow. There's just any number of ways to do things. Is that similar in something like high performance sport or not? Well, uh I guess according to my review, when I was looking at the Paris reviews of very famous uh, sort of prize-winning authors, I was surprised. That if we're talking about novelists, I, I think mm -hmm. there's maybe a little bit different if you're working on shorter pieces like poems or, or short stories. But if you're working on a novel, uh, it seems like all the novelists that I could find that could actually control their time. So assuming now that you actually have all the day for you to decide when you're going to write. Uh, people were waking up and then actually writing in the morning. And then at some point, uh, basically often at noon, uh, when they put in maybe three or four hours, uh, they would then basically stop writing and more or less 
kind of relax and take walks or taking naps and other kinds of things. And I have, couldn't find an exception to that rule for those people who were really prize-winning authors. And, and I've talked to a lot of other people, writers, who have that sense that there's only so many hours that you can actually sustain that concentration to do your best work. And, and I have a couple of examples of Nobel Prize winners who actually, because of time pressure, wanted to you know, p- go beyond that and write in the afternoon, but essentially found that when they went back the next day, they found that they spent more time revising what they did in the afternoon. So it was sort of like a waste of their time to, to do that. And, and I would argue that when you look at, at, at athletes, kind of the same thing of, of actually protecting and ideally making sure here that you've now slept so you can wake up by yourself. So you're really about as fresh as you can be. And that's the time when you're doing the most difficult type of training. Um, and, and, and that's when you can actually stretch yourself and, and do things that you can later then incorporate in your performance during actual games. Now, the closest to working with professionals have been working with surgeons. And, and what I find that surgeons would do and I, I don't think that there's any clear parallels, but they would, with elective surgery, so they would differentiate, you know, when they actually have to do something on an emergency basis because the patient is about to die unless they do something. But when they have elective surgery, they would actually plan out, you know, and look at all the x-rays and, and medical images. So they actually can do the surgery mentally to see here what are the possible problems that could happen mm-hmm. and, and how do I need to prepare for that? Or, or are there ways in which I can minimize the risk here if I find, you know, such and such because of a previous surgery, there is basically tissues that, you know, you wouldn't want to cut through. Uh, and then basically when you do the surgery, you're basically now prepared for all sorts of things. And then there are going to be things happening that you weren't prepared for. And then what very good surgeons do, they have videotapes of what they're doing. So they would actually go over and look at what happened and then work with their team to ask the question, you know, how can we make sure that this never happens in the future? So what are the kind of adjustments and what it, where is it we were actually able to do something that would have avoided this problem? And then you end up over, you know, I guess one surgeon kept track of all their, his surgeries for 12 years and was able to reduce the number of adverse events you know, dramatically over that period. And, and, and I, I can basically see here that depending on what activity you're doing, if you take that kind of view here of always trying to learn from what it is that happened and then ask, is there something that I could have done in advance? So if you maybe as a journalist would be able to anticipate that this might actually be an issue, there may be a lot of work that you could do that would actually put you in in a place here where when the things happen, you would have the context and you would basically be able to you know, write about it in a way that would be different if you had to do some of that reading in response to the request for writing about an event. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly think I've done about 10,000 hours of it and (laughs) and not perfected it. So there must be something in that. Um, Now, listen, just just to get to the sort of... um, in some ways, the heart of the issue, or certainly some something that people come to and, and is an endlessly argued about topic, the issue of talent 
and the innateness of talent. This is something I know that you've thought about and, and written about here and elsewhere, and you have pretty interesting views about it. Well, uh, you know, starting with the focus that we had, where we're actually looking at the kinds of things that people are thinking and the kind of skills that they develop, I think it's pretty clear that that must have been acquired. You know, it's not something that you're born with. Uh, and over time, I've sort of been looking more and more here. You know, are there things that you can't actually modify by training? And I've been surprised to find that, you know, virtually everything that I look at, there's very good evidence that at least during some developmental period, sometimes they're, you know, like your shoulders. Uh, uh, if So if you want to basically throw things, uh, you can actually modify your your uh, shoulder joint in such a way that you can actually reach further back. But that's something that can only really be done between 10 and 12. So if you're not actually practicing during that period, you're not going to have that adaptation because once the bones are calcified and, and firm, uh, you can't really make that change at an older age. And we know, obviously, that there is a physique that is more suited to throwing a discus, say, and a physique that's more suited to running the 10,000 meters. Right. But once you start controlling for height and body size, so basically the length of the bones in your body, uh, then actually I've yet to find cases here where training uh, basically cannot modify when the training is, is done at, a, at an appropriate age. I'm not saying that we'll never find anything like that, but but I'm struck by the fact that people have now for 20 years been looking for individual genes that would be sort of, you know, necessary for being uh, world class in various running events and stuff like that. And people have not found them yet. And I think there is a clear possibility here that you wouldn't find these genes. And what we're arguing is that it's a particular training that you engage in that may activate genes that actually people have. So the big difference is when you look at somebody who is throwing the discus with all their muscles and stuff like that, and you control now for the body size factors, it's going to be basically be a response to their training. And, and, and if you're a long-distance runner, you basically are going to adapt the building of your muscles and, and actually even the heart so it allows you to pump now a lot of blood here to your uh, muscles so they can work effectively and, and run at a very fast speed. That those are adaptations to long-term training. And once you go back early enough, I've yet to find evidence here that if we look at when kids are really young, before they actually start training, uh, I don't know of evidence that really sort of allows people to make good predictions here that somebody's going to be successful. And in fact, I think the scientific literature shows that it's extremely difficult to actually predict who is going to be extremely successful even when you're in the teenage years. Mm. So so there's a lot of myths about, you know, that somebody, you know, when they started out had, you know, obviously this talent. Because if you look at efforts to actually validate that you can identify kids very early on uh, before they start training uh, and then actually make predictions about how well they would be doing. It's fascinating though, isn't it? Because so much of what you're saying, as you say, we think about things in terms of myths quite a lot. And we do, don't you think, Will, we have these kind of um, 
intuitive feelings that actually aren't correct, and I wonder why we want to cling on to them. Well, I, I, so I'm particularly intrigued by the the last thing you were saying there, Anders, because uh, many, many years ago, um, I started dancing when I was about six, and in fact, when I got to about 11, I went to a professional dance school where the sort of training comes... Do you mean ballet dancing? Well, I did ballet and tap Uh and flamenco and all sorts. Um, But I put in, God knows how many hours, uh, I wouldn't like to top them up, but I always struggled, I think, physically uh, to do something, say, something like the splits. I I was never very loose, as it was sort of known. And uh, I could see that other people in the class were naturally much looser than I was or ever had been and I could put in as much work as I liked but I just wasn't ever convinced I was ever going to be able to make my body do the kind of things that they seem to be able to do very naturally and so I just wondered whether there are any physical constraints on this idea of of uh, of deliberate practice allowing you to almost do anything I mean because when you talk to people about this idea they get piano practice they get violin they get maths they get the sort of even surgery as you were talking about but I just wonder whether there are any kind of physical constraints on what you might be able to achieve and and and, and I think that those are very good questions and and I would love to actually have people uh, present evidence because I've been looking for that kind of evidence now for 30 years one of the issues I would say is that one and that has to do with the tenseness and the sort of stress level that some individuals have when they train. So if you're actually going to be tensed up when you're doing all your different activities, you're going to actually learn how to do it in a different way. Now, I believe that with the right kind of teacher, they would actually identify that as something that you would need to adapt to and and, and work on. And the other thing that I find is that when you look at what is going on in people's heads when they're taking your their piano training or whatever, you will find that some of the kids are actually developing, and, and this is one theme here in our book, uh, mental representation. So they actually are able to kind of image what it should sound like, and then they're able to kind of translate, you know, a sound to how they would be playing, mm-hmm. and they can actually listen to what it sounds like when they're playing. So that kind of combination of representations really provide you with a completely different developmental trajectory than when you have some kids who play the piano who just memorize the order in which they're hitting the keys. If you tell them to modify the way they're doing it, they don't really kind of can't translate that into what it should be sounding like because they can't really hear what it sounds like when they're playing. They're just focusing in on hitting the keys in the right order. And, and if we can come in and actually, you know, describe what's going on in kids' heads, I think we can actually help them and, and allow them to develop those representations. It may be that when, when we start trying to do that, we'll find that there are some limiting factors. And I think what all I'm saying is I don't know of the evidence. I'm not in any way proving that it couldn't be such evidence But I'm repeatedly surprised that every time when I'm trying to pin down what the evidence really is, there are all these alternative explanations that would allow individuals to successfully improve if they have the right kind of teacher support and uh, a learning environment. 
the only evidence I can provide right now would be my, my aged body trying to get into the splits, <laughs> and nobody wants to see that. Well, I don't know. I think they might. <laughs> Will, I'm going to send you away with the homework okay. of, of attempting to do the splits, although I don't take any responsibility if something <laughs> terrible befalls you. But, but now the splits is a little bit tricky and, and may, in fact, uh, you know, be related to the early training of, of actually, mm. you know, similar to the turnout in ballet dancers yeah. that we know that if you haven't made those adjustments by 12, uh, we don't know of any methods except maybe surgery that, uh, and maybe not even surgery would do the job. Uh, so there are certain kinds of things that, that has to be acquired at the right time. And if you miss that window, uh, then we're talking about a very different story. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I tried to make the adjustments probably too late. And in fact, I did get surgery, but only because I'd, I'd mashed my knees up in the process of trying to sort of, you know, oh force that t- Well, this is ballet, you see. Well, it's tough out I there. mean, it's, it's the Royal Ballet's loss, but it's our gain. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for coming and, and telling us about your childhood attempts to do this bit. But more thanks to Anders Ericsson. This was such a fascinating chat. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. To complete this month's podcast, we wanted to pay tribute to Muhammad Ali, a sporting legend who sadly passed away recently. And what better way to do that than with the words of George Plimpton? Plimpton was an American journalist like no other. He pioneered a sort of form of participatory journalism, which saw him taking part in ever more extreme forms of sport and entertainment. He played golf, he played ice hockey, he played American football, and he also boxed. Vintage is about to reissue all of his works in the UK properly for the first time. And what we have here is an extract taken from Shadow Box, in which he recounts the time that he and Ali almost stepped into a ring together. I myself had got a small sense of what it was like to be in a Muhammad Ali force field. In 1974, he and I had arranged the same sort of boxing bout I had had with Archie Moore. It was to be part of a documentary on boxing I had been asked to do by the BBC. Everything was arranged. He and I were going to meet in the ring in Louisville, Kentucky, where he was going back to be honoured. It's his hometown, of course, on the eve of the Kentucky Derby. Everyone in the audience was to be in black tie, like the crowd at the sporting club in London. Ali had agreed somewhat sulkily to the exhibition. When it was arranged, he said, sort of annoyed, I mean, what am I supposed to do with you? I understood his annoyance. I said, oh, well, I'll train very hard. I'll really work at it. He shrugged, and then he asked, You mean I'm supposed to hit you? I told him about my experience with Archie Moore. He hit you? My nose went, I said. Not the whole thing. Just the tip. Oh, yeah, he said vaguely. But then the idea sort of got to him. We'd meet somewhere and he'd grin and announce that he was going to beat me up and knock me flat on my back and he was going to stand on my stomach there in the ring and do the Ali shuffle. He'd never thought of that before, sliding his gym shoes back and forth on a man's belly. And he thought I was just the person to practice on. Besides, he saw me as a symbol of all the trouble he'd had from riders. He was going to beat me real bad so that my fingers couldn't work the typewriter keys. He'd motion me into the back seat of his car. Let the rider in so he can stretch out and relax. We want him all cool and nice and sassy for the fight. Close the refrigerator door on him. So I began to sense what it must be like to be scheduled to fight him, to be the object of his attention. He settled you in some compartment in his head, like a toy in a trunk to be taken out on occasion and examined and pushed around on the floor. One became a possession of his, available for whatever fanciful manipulation came to mind. 
The phone would ring, and the high voice, near a giggle, would say without introduction, "'You was going to fall the quickest! You was going to fall during the ring instructions!' And then I could hear Bandini's voice in the background saying, "'Don't scare him like that, champ. He'll take to drinking cocktails.' And the phone would click dead. Once he spotted me in the lobby of the Sheraton Hotel across from Madison Square Garden. I was heading for the elevator banks, and he guessed, quite correctly, that I was going to a party on the 14th floor, boxing riders, some such group, where he had just been. Without my spotting him, he hopped into the elevator and went on back up. He beat me to the 14th floor. My elevator was crowded. We had made a number of stops. I moved to the front of the elevator as we came to the 14th floor, and as the door slid open, there he was, immediately in front of us, poised in a fighter's stance with his chin tucked down, and he was glowering at me. If one ignored the fact that he was dressed in a brown business suit, he looked precisely as if he had stepped off a life-sized fight poster. I stared at him. I remember the sound of a short, snuffled nasal snort, the kind he makes in the ring when he throws a punch, and he shot out a left jab hand, thrusting it into the elevator and stopping his fist just an inch or so short of my nose and then withdrawing it. All of it was swift as the flicker of a bullwhip. His presence just there in front of us was awesome. And behind me I heard a woman yell and the crash of her bracelets as she caught a hand to her throat. We all continued to stare at him. Nobody moved to step out of the elevator, all of us stunned. And then abruptly the automatic doors began to slide silently shut, closing out the apparition, and the elevator shuddered slightly and began to move up. The odd thing was that no one mentioned it. Nobody said, what the hell was that? The elevator stopped a few floors above, and a woman carrying a large shopping bag pressed to the front began to get off, though perhaps a bit apprehensively, as if the thought had crossed her mind that the phantom fighter might be waiting for her down the corridor. That was a wonderful tribute to a legendary sportsman and indeed a legendary writer because I think what we've done, Will, in this podcast is try to unite sports and writing. Do you think we've succeeded? I think we have. I mean, maybe maybe not as well as George Plimpson did with his extraordinary career. Do you think you're off to learn how to do the splits now? Oh, God. It really <laughs> hurts. Uh, we will be doing a video accompaniment to this next time, dear listeners, and we will see how Will is getting on. I have been thrilled to host all these wonderful guests today. Um, please enjoy your summer of sport. And we will be back next month when we will be talking about that ever fun issue of Summer Reading. Don't forget you can catch up with previous issues of this podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can also leave a rating or a comment. Please join us next month.